0: Well, this morning we're going to be arriving at Matthew 2 for our text this morning, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 15, so I'd invite you to turn right there with me, and I actually would like to read the passage before we begin, and then we'll pray as we we come to the conclusion of this passage this morning, but Matthew 2, 1 through 15, Matthew 2, 1 through 15. is a very famous story, the story of the wise men coming to see Jesus. I'm sure many of us are, of course, familiar with it. If we've grown up in the church or even just been around uh, American culture, you'll see nativity scenes, and there are usually three wise men present. This is that very story, uh, and I look forward to diving into the text this morning with you. Matthew 2, 1 through 15 is the very word of God given to us in love, forever true, forever faithful, God whose word never returns void. So Matthew 2 says this, "'And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea "'and the days of Herod the king, "'behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, "'saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? "'For we saw his star when it rose "'and have come to worship him. "'Now when Herod the king heard this, "'he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, "'and assembling all the chief priests "'and scribes of the people, He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, "'Go and search diligently for the child. "'And when you have found him, bring me word "'that I too may come and worship him.'" Now, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered to him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "'Rise!' This is the word of God. Let's uh, let's come before him in prayer. Father, we are so grateful that as we have read your word, you've given it to us to reveal to us the magnificence of Christ himself. God, we thank you that um, as we read passages that are so familiar to us, it can be so easy to turn on auto control, so to speak, or autopilot, and, and just kind of let the words fall over us. But Father, I ask that as we read such a familiar story to us, we would read this with eyes of faith, recognizing that it's only by the Spirit that we can see the light of this text, that we can see this, the very word of God, Holy Scripture, for what it is. And so Lord, we ask that as we come to this very famous passage, a well-known passage, that we would see and receive and hear these words very clearly from you. Father, I ask that as I deliver your word to your people and to all who are listening, Father, that you would allow me to simply get out of the way and that you would take the front stage, so to speak. God, may you be central. May Christ be exalted and lifted up for he is the name that is above every name. And God, we ask that as we come to hear your word and to receive it this very morning in faith, would you be pleased with our worship, O God? Would you be pleased with this and continue to nourish us and refresh us through this preached word? And so we pray all this in Christ's powerful name, amen. So every year, my, uh, my brother, his name is Ryan, Ryan and I, we pull pranks on each other every single Christmas time, without fail. And uh, Ryan, who I would love to introduce to you guys down the road, is someone that is just completely goofy all the time. In fact, back in high school, a senior year, he was voted class clown. And he's always good for a comedic relief. But every year, I'm not even sure exactly when this unholy tradition started, but every year for probably close to about 20 years now, Ryan and I, every Christmas without fail, give each other these giant bags and giant presents as gifts. The problem, though, is that we wrap up the smallest of things that we can find, like a gift card or something of that nature, in tons of wrapping paper and tissue paper and grocery bags plastic bags and brown bags alike anything that can wrap up the smallest of presents in order to trick or prank the other person into believing it is a much better present than what it really is is what we do to each other and for some odd reason after even almost 20 years of doing this to each other we still crack each other up and we just we end up getting pictures of how goofy the present is and Nothing, no kind of paper is off limits. I'll let your imaginations go a little wild there. (laughs) But nothing is off limits. If it can wrap up a present, it gets put into the bag and it's meant to trick us. We, uh, for as stale as that joke is though, um, still again, end up cracking each other up in our entire families. We just completely goof off at this time of the year because of how bizarre our wrapping abilities are or perhaps the lack thereof. (laughs) Well, as Christmas is only a few days away from us now, the idea of gift giving, of course, has been on probably all of our minds, I imagine. And it's interesting when we think of the idea of gift giving, that the very nature of giving a gift is that we are masquerading something by nature or masquerading what is actually about to be given with good intention, most likely. But the appearance of what is there, the bag or the tons of paper inside the bag, whatever it is, it's masquerading the real thing. In other words, there is a stark difference between the appearance of the gift and the actual gift itself. Well, we see the same very thing right here in the text of Matthew 2, we have before us, as is our theme of Advent this very morning, this theme of love, we have both an appearance of love in verses one through eight, but also actualized love in verses nine through 15. The appearance of love, but also actual love. See, try as we might as people, no amount of figurative wrapping paper that we put on our love for other people um, or our best attempts at conveying love without the actual heart of love behind it will prove to be genuine. And that's why this idea of, of, of an appearance of love versus actualized love is so important for us to uncover this very morning. In fact, when we do not love one another genuinely, as Romans 12, 9 through 10 tells us to do, uh, this is what results in all kinds of conflicts in the church and in our families. As James tells us, it's when our passions, our pride, and our own egos within ourselves war against ourselves and other members of the church. It's in these times that we begin to bite and to devour one another rather than building up one another in genuine love. And so this morning, our Advent theme of love is displayed right here in the text of Matthew 2, 1 through 15, in a somewhat peculiar way. It might not be exactly obvious at first, but again, I will venture to say that we see an appearance of love in the first half, and actual love in the second half. So as we begin to unpack this concept of love from our passage, I think it's important to emphasize a key word that we probably saw a couple times here in this very passage. And it's that word worship, worship. We know from the very law of God that our highest aim in life is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever fully. And we know from the very law of God that our highest aim when it comes to love is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And secondarily, to love our neighbor as ourself. And so therefore to worship God is to actually love him and to stand in awe of him, for he is who he is. And we are designed to ascribe the praise that is due his name in recognizing who he is. Now, in the first half of this passage, we'll see this notion of a desire or a want to worship Christ, the Christ child, from both the wise men, but also King Herod. And of course, we know from the story, there's a stark difference between the two of them. Again, in verses one through eight, there's this appearance of love as Herod says, oh, I want to go worship the Christ. And yet the love, quote unquote, on the part of Herod is truly only wrapped up in figurative tissue paper and grocery bags. So the promise of worship that Herod had promised was intended only to fool and to deceive God's people. Now, seeing that this, our passage, is a narrative by nature, I find that it's crucial to understand the context of Matthew 2 in light of the larger picture of history leading up to this very event. And so in this particular sermon, I want to actually go back in time a little bit and uncover the Jewish history that was leading up to Matthew 2. See, though this story about Herod who sought to destroy Jesus is, again, so familiar to us in many ways, along with the wise men who sought to worship him, it's often the most familiar of things in life that we are prone to miss. I mean, how many times do we miss the turn to a familiar place even here in town as we're going from one spot to another? It's easy for us to become so familiar that we might miss a turn. In the same way, it's easy for us to miss what is going on in the text because of the familiarity of the text. For instance, just as a couple case in points, when we think of the word or the name Herod, a lot of us probably picture King Herod here, but I imagine most of us might not know that there were actually six different Herods within the New Testament time that it was written. Six different Herods. Not all of them are mentioned in scripture, but there were six different ones, and he himself was the father and grandfather of the other ones that that followed him. Uh, In the same way, the Magi from the East, uh, as we know from a lot of Christmas songs, uh, we might think that there were three of them coming from Orient, from the Orient land. And yet we know from church history that there were likely probably 12 or 14 or even more potentially because they made such a big scene as they entered Jerusalem. They were probably not just three in number, but many, many more in a caravan. And so given those kinds of cases in mind, I think it's important to take a moment and explain a little bit of the background of Matthew 2 before we dive deeply into the text and these events that transpired. So King Herod, let's focus on him for a little bit here. King Herod himself was a master of disguise, uh, when I was thinking about his persona, he probably would have fit very well with some of our favorite politicians in D.C. because he knew how to play the part of bipartisan politics inside and out. And in fact, he did this so well that he actually married into the line of the Maccabeans by marrying Mary the I of the Maccabean line. Mary Omni herself was actually from that line of the Maccabeans who revolted against the Greeks, and who actually took to actually free Israel from Grecian rule about a century prior to Herod's reign, around 167 BC or so. And Herod himself began to reign in 37 BC, a number of years later, and yet though he himself had married into the Jewish line and was ruling as a puppet king over Southern Israel and Judah, he himself also bowed the knee to the Roman Empire. He sought fortune and good standing before the Romans, as opposed to true protection for the province of Southern Israel, as they themselves desired resistance and separation from Rome. Herod the Great, the first of the Herods that we see in scripture, was himself an educated ruler, gifted in the art of combat and rhetoric and architecture, and even political persuasion. He himself actually rose to power initially, again, by marrying into that Maccabean line. And he initially sided with a couple of famous names that many of us might be familiar with, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, queen of of Egypt. He actually sided with them originally against the rule of Octavian, who sought to oppress the people. Octavian, who was later known as Caesar Augustus. We know him from scripture. However, as Octavian finally defeated Mark Antony, around 31 BC, and the rule of power began to shift away from the Roman Senate to the Roman Empire, Herod the Great himself swiftly became a turncoat, so to speak, and paid homage to the emperor and sought to act as a vessel of Rome who kind of played the party line between the Jews and the Romans. Someone who could provide financial stability for the Jews while also being in good standing before the Romans. Now, for hundreds of years, the Jews had been long under Persian and Greek and even Roman rule, and the patriotic acts of the Hasmoneans and the Maccabeans and the various zealots to free and liberate Israel from tyrannical rule proved to be only somewhat effectual. Herod the Great of Judea tried to cater to, again, both the Jews and the Romans in a couple different things that he did over the time of his reign. Uh, First being the rebuilding of the temple— because many years prior, about 130 years prior to his reign, the temple had been desecrated, abominably so, as the Greeks actually set up an altar to Zeus within the temple and offered pig's flesh upon the altar, desecrating the temple, violating it in such a way that the Jews thought, it's just over and done, we've lost, game is over. And so Herod actually sought to win their favor by rebuilding and refurnishing and and revitalizing the temple itself. But at the same time, he also tried to win the favor of the scribes and those who would be known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees as well, by playing to them and earning their favor in doing that. But he also was a lover of Roman culture, almost equally, if not greater. And so he himself, as an equestrian, a horse lover, so to speak, and an architect, he actually built up this major city called Caesarea. Caesarea a place that I actually had the privilege of going to a number of years ago in Israel that still stands to this day, a place where there are hippodromes for horse racing and tons of amphitheaters all over where you can hear, and well, you could have heard, rather, the greatest of plays of that day and age. He loved Roman culture, and so he played both sides very well. But there was something very interesting about Herod himself. For as successful as he might have been by any worldly standard, he himself was a madman completely bonkers. (laughs) He himself had gone thoroughly psychotic on the people and felt threatened by anyone who posed a potential threat to his throne. For instance, by 4 BC, which was arguably the time that Christ was born, Herod had already killed his wife, Mariamne, the one I mentioned earlier, along with three of their sons through her marriage. What a horrible person, right? someone who kills his own wife and kids because he thought that they might take over his throne. That is how insecure and feeble his reign really was. In fact, he was known as a murderer and had the reputation of a murderer, so much so that Octavian or Caesar Augustus actually is quoted in the historical records as saying that it would be better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son, which is a play on words in Greek. (laughs) Better to be his huios, or his huion rather than his huios, his pig rather than his son. What is crazy is that in Matthew 2 then, our text this morning, the word of God, is that you can visualize, knowing the historical background, the amount of stress and, and just restraint that Herod was trying to hold in during this time. As he received the news that there were these foreign visitors from Persia or Chaldea, somewhere out west, or out out east rather, who were coming and seeking this new king of the Jews who had just been born. Someone who would usurp his throne in due time. Who who were these people? Well, in Matthew 2, their own words, the words of the Magi say this, "'Where is he who has been born king of the Jews?' they said, "'For we saw his star when it rose and have come,' for what purpose? to worship him, to worship him. These words would have struck the very heart of Herod like nothing else. In Matthew 2, 3, it says this, when Herod the king heard this, he was so troubled that all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. See, Jerusalem was so tied up in the feelings of Herod and his emotions, as psychotic as they might have been, And they feared the loss of their riches and their prosperity so much that if he was troubled, they themselves were too. However, whatever the whims of Herod were for the day, that was their whims too. Who knew what kind of destruction this news would bring to Jerusalem in Southern Israel? Who would rise and fall at the birth of this king? And so playing according to his political prowess, Herod himself, Herod the Great, called for the chief priests and the scribes of that day who were there serving in Jerusalem at the temple. Those who were likely even Pharisees of that day who would be known as that later on in time. And those people who were essentially the keepers of the law of God. Those who knew inside and out the law of God. These two groups knew scripture and yet what is so sad in their appearance of love for the scripture, is that it was very obvious by their own actions that their hearts were very far from God himself, because they were not enthusiastic in the slightest about the Messiah who had come to their midst. When Herod inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born, I think it's interesting to pay careful attention to what the text says, because they answered in a very factual tone. And yet they made no offer to actually go and find this Messiah. Their hearts were so far from God. In contrast, though, the Magi themselves were also a kind of wise men, as the scribes and Pharisees and chief priests would have been, but they were wise men who were not believers, who were from Persia or Chaldea, most likely, astrologers and philosophers of that day who were counselors to kings, much like those scribes and the Pharisees, etc., were. But they had come led by God's revelation through the use of a unique and supernatural star, one of its kind, or what might have been possibly a comet for all we know, something though that drew them to seek royalty, to seek this king. And while we do not know exactly how the Lord revealed this knowledge to them, that this king was the king of Israel, let alone that this baby was actually the king in the first place, and we wouldn't do well to speculate upon the manner in which God revealed that special knowledge to them. It was apparent in the least that the Lord Himself had directed them to pay homage to Christ as King. And so the troubled Herod, quickly upon hearing this news, devised a scheme, a plot, to kill off this threat before His throne at all costs. And He commissioned them to find the child and to return to him with explicit details as to how he may find his location, uh, all for the purpose of worship, of course, right? Worship just such as theirs. Now, though Herod himself was outside of these wise men's jurisdiction, they were, and I think this is important to catch, they were people who were dutiful and obedient. And so they both honored the Lord as much as they could, but also Herod as much as they could upon receiving this initial commission. They were people who recognized that Herod had been set up by God's sovereign hand, and so they obeyed these initial orders. After hearing the promise of Micah 5.2, which the scribes and the chief priests had admitted, they longed to see the fulfillment of God's word before their eyes. The prophet Micah, hundreds of years prior, had written under divine inspiration these words of Micah 5.2 that we know so well. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now the wise men understood that this newborn child was to be both a king and a shepherd in essence. A king who would rule with a rod of iron, but also a shepherd who would rule with a shepherd's staff. In other words, justice in one hand, and yet love and mercy in the other hand. For in Christ, both justice and mercy meet. And so for the joy that was set before these wise men, they pressed onward and onward until they came to Bethlehem. For though they had been commissioned by Herod, humanly speaking, they had been ultimately compelled by the Lord God himself to find this newborn king of the Jews. I can imagine as they were going, again, not knowing as much about the scriptures themselves, at the very least, knowing that this new king of Israel had been born they probably were thinking to themselves, it's better for us to at least pay homage and to worship him now than for many years down the road to be not under his good graces if he is truly the king of the Jews. And so whether their love was ultimately genuine or not, we at least see an act of obedience and honor and homage being given on the part of the wise men. So Herod and both the wise men at the very least had an appearance of love, but what about actual love? we're going to see that here in the last part of our text this morning from Matthew 2 verses 9 through 15. See in juxtaposition to the appearance of love for Jesus that Herod and the religious leaders of Jerusalem had expressed, the wise men themselves were in essence led by an actual love or again at least an honor for this new king. They had a joyfulness that couldn't be explained away as they approached his very presence. See, where Herod and the people of Jerusalem had been largely numb to the news of Christ's birth, the wise men had essentially become heralds of this good news. Where Herod had become troubled upon the realization that he stood in direct opposition to God, the wise men sought to honor God and to see his plan fulfilled. Where the scribes had assumed authority over the word of God and its interpretation, the wise men heeded the word of God where Herod and the people had idolized human comfort and joy. Uh, What's interesting is that there yet still stood this truth. The promised one of Israel, true comfort and joy through salvation in his name, had come to them at last. As Jesus said during his ministry to the Pharisees later on in life in John 8, verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. In other words, Herod did not receive the words of God because he was not of God. And so going back to the wise men, the wise men found their way to Christ by means of the star and heeding the scripture, both things hand in hand. On route to Bethlehem, the supernatural star that had uh, been there before had actually reappeared to them at this time. And it landed over the place where the child was. They were then filled with a joy upon joy, literally a kind of joyful joy with great exuberance that filled their mouths. Excitement was in the air. Now, I imagine if we were there firsthand to experience this, we would feel the exact same way, coming to the King of kings and Lord of lords, born in a manger stall. And so the wise men humbled themselves before Jesus as they approached him and his very lowly throne. They went to the room where Mary and Joseph were staying and gave Jesus those famous gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, whether these kinds of gifts had a a prophetic tone or not, ultimately, uh, the text itself is not very obvious in what they were meant to impart. But at the very least, these three gifts would have cost the equivalent of tens of thousands of dollars by the standards of that day. So at the very least, these wise men gave so much of themselves for the purpose of this king and honoring him as such. Up until this point, though, their love for Jesus had been mostly idyllic. It had been based upon this idea that he is the king. And yet now in this very moment, they recognized him as such. And so we know from the text that shortly after, uh, they received a vision in the night from an angel of the Lord who told them not to return to Herod and to rather disobey Herod based upon the explicit instruction of God And so the wise men obeyed, and they exercised exercised their love for this low-born king by civilly disobeying the king who ruled over them in tyranny. Now shortly after their departure, Joseph himself also received a message from an angel of the Lord. We know that from verse 13, where it says this, uh, the angel said to Joseph, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, because Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so Joseph immediately did that very same thing, and under the cover of the night, took Mary and the child away to Egypt, away to safety. See, in that very moment, what is interesting to us is that Christ himself, even there in his infancy, was fulfilling all kinds of prophecy. Prophecy from the Old Testament. And that very psalm, Psalm 34 that we read earlier in our call to worship, is right there, Psalm 34, verses four through seven even in particular, being fulfilled right there in Matthew 2. What do Psalm uh, 34, verses four through seven say to us? Well, it says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Those who look to him shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them." And so just as Jesus was fulfilling this in himself with the angel of the Lord appearing, even in, at that time of his birth, Joseph and Mary also inadvertently were also fulfilling Psalm 34, particularly verses 13 through 14 of Psalm 34 which says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. See, in effect, King Herod, who had sought to fool the wise men and oppose the almighty God, found himself to be made the fool, ultimately, and the one who was in direct opposition to God's plan under God's just condemnation. While Joseph had acted out of a faith and a desire for a protection of Christ, Herod sought the exact opposite. However, for Joseph, there was a kind of promptness that we see here in this narrative, a promptness in his leading the small family of three to Egypt by night in faith. And though Egypt had been an enemy to God for centuries prior to this point, Joseph knew as he obeyed God that God would continue to protect him, much like what Psalm 34 says. For God himself had been their strength and had proved to be their fortress. And so he couldn't help but trust God as he already had, even leading up to the very birth of Christ, in listening to Mary and entrusting her and in recognizing how the Lord was working in their midst through those very unique circumstances. See, it was by faith that both Joseph and Mary were eventually led to Egypt to live amongst what were otherwise the very enemies of God, away from the temple in Israel, away from the sacrificial system, even for a short time, and away from the public worship of God until the day of their rescue from exile in Egypt would come. And yet what's interesting, and John Calvin in his commentary on Matthew 2 makes the same note What is interesting is that by God's providence, their worship was not in vain. Because the very object of their worship, Christ himself, the fulfillment of the temple which they had to vacate or leave, the very sacrificial system that they were not able to be even participants of for a short time, even the very public worship that they were away from for a season were all being fulfilled literally right in their arms as they cradled the true temple. The true object of worship, the true sacrifice of his people in their very arms. See as Herod had sought to slaughter Jesus among with all, along with all the other children under two years of age in Bethlehem later on, probably about 20 or 30, at least in number, of small children, after he had learned of the wise men's resistance and a disobedience toward him, Herod himself, according to God's plan, eventually let, met his own demise. He eventually found himself dead by 4 BC, according to the historical records. We learn from this that just as the Lord raises up rulers and God's own sovereign plan, he also has every power to shut them down, according to that same sovereign plan. And yet the Lord did not neglect Joseph and Mary while they were away in Egypt all the while. See, upon the death of Herod, the Lord immediately sent word to Joseph again in Matthew 2, verse 19, as you have right in front of you, and he instructed them to return to the district of Galilee. This is interesting because Herod's son, well, one of his sons, Herod Archelaus, was actually serving already as a puppet king in the southern part of Israel again. And so the Lord commanded Joseph to go all the way up to Galilee, which is on the north side of Israel, away from Herod's reign, still resisting it ultimately. For once, there was no hope for Joseph and Mary, or so it seemed at least. But in time, God brought about a special and unique and very loving deliverance for them through his only begotten son, Christ. In the same way, thinking back to Psalm 34, Psalm 34 verses 18 through 19 also proved to be trustworthy and true. 18 and 19, those verses there in Psalm 34 say this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. See, just as Israel, the people of God, his chosen son was sent to Egypt, Israel, the nation, in fear of famine and otherwise certain death during the time of Jacob and his son Joseph and his brothers for the rescue of God's people Jesus himself was also sent down to Egypt for his own safety and rescue. See, Jesus himself is the very true son of God, who, just as Israel was in exile, so to speak, in Egypt for 400 years, Christ himself went down there for the safety of of himself. Hosea 11, verse 1 says of the people of Israel, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, so as of Christ... God the Father protected him and will, covenantally speaking, protect all of us who are in Christ, for we are bound to him. Proverbs 8.35 tells us this, that whoever finds wisdom, which is ultimately personified in Christ himself, wisdom, will find favor and life from the Lord. And so hear this gospel truth, beloved. All who are in Christ are and will be protected by God. And we know this truth from Romans eight thirty one through 39. This magnificent reassurance of Romans 8, one of the pinnacle points of all of scripture. See, Romans 8 tells us this, that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. My friends, we live in a world in which the church, the very bride of Christ whom he loves, is in many ways under attack. The church is often ridiculed and counted as an enemy, even in our own culture, admittedly so. And yet we have a conquering king who has conquered over the very gates of hell. The gates of hell cannot even overcome him. Though the kingdom of his grace is still expanding and spreading to distant shores, we often here in this life continue to feel the tension and the turmoil and the sadness and despair as we perceive that Christ's kingdom is maybe not expanding the way that we want it to, that we would have it in our own terms. In fact, many of us, like myself, have felt as though the church has been under attack, even perhaps this very year, when it comes to the uh, just insensitivities of certain politicians toward how we worship and our right to worship. But come what may, no matter what comes in the next year, our God himself and the worship of him will not be stifled. It will not, for it cannot. See, just as we see in Revelation 12, that Satan who is truly the enemy, capital E, enemy of God's church, who is characterized as a great red dragon, rose up to destroy Jesus at the time of his birth, as we see in Matthew 2 even, the Lord delivered him to safety. The Lord will also deliver us to safety. And at the time of his crucifixion upon the cross, the son of God ultimately conquered over Satan, securing that victory over Satan's sin and death for all time crushing the head of that ancient serpent. And soon, because of our union with Jesus, God will crush Satan. God, the very God of peace, will crush Satan under our feet. This is the beauty of the gospel because we are tied to Christ. His victory is also what we find ourselves in as well. He is our king, we are his people, and he is one for us. So, friends, as we conclude, know that we have a lover of our souls, namely Jesus, who came in the fullness of time, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law. We who had no hope of salvation in keeping the law, for even our best efforts to to attempt to love God, uh, even the efforts that might appear to be love, ultimately themselves fall short. And yet we have in Christ a Savior, a Savior, who loves, who actually loves to the uttermost, one whose love will never fail us, and one whose love actually covers us. With that in mind, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that as you have given us your word, we recognize that it is trustworthy and true. God, we thank you that as we've come to a very familiar passage this morning from Matthew 2, that we have the reassurance that we are so deeply loved by Christ and that apart from him, we have nothing. God, we thank you that we have stability and confidence in his name. For there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved, save for Christ. So God, we ask as we move into this time of communion with you <clears throat> by your very spirit, would you refresh us Would you cause us to see Christ, the King in all of his beauty. And may we behold him and stand in light of his magnificence and splendor. And so love him all the more deeply. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.